Hello, and welcome again to our podcast, The Midnight Ramblings. I'm Jenny Silverstein, and I'm with my dear friend from Ledoux Junior High, Carrie Ofstein Rosenthal. If you're joining us for the first time and you're wondering what this is all about, Carrie and I are two friends who can no longer sleep at night. So we decided the best thing to do would be to create a podcast about what we and others think about when we can't sleep. So, as we like to say, let's get ready to ramble. That was our guest, Lisan Sartor, who is an award-winning writer-director whose short films have screened in hundreds of worldwide festivals. She has participated in the AFI Directing Workshop for Women, the AFI Foxbridge Program, the Yaddo Artist Residency, Hedgebrook Writers Residency, the Story Knife Writers Residency, and the WGA Feature Writers Access Project. Her feature script, Six Letter Word, won the drama category of the Script Pipeline First Look Project, was a ScreenCraft Film Fund finalist, a ScreenCraft Fellowship finalist, a Script Pipeline Screenwriting Contest semifinalist, a Female Eye Film Festival Best Screenplay recipient, and Female Eye Live Pitch winner, among others. She will direct that feature with Tani Cohn producing. Lisan moved to Los Angeles to be a writer-director after graduating Yale, but got waylaid from writing and directing when she was admitted to the DGA Assistant Director Training Program. She quickly discovered that Although assistant directing doesn't necessarily lead to directing, it's good training for any aspect of filmmaking. She left ADING after seven years to get an MFA in screenwriting from UCLA, where she won numerous screenwriting awards, including the Samuel Goldwyn. Her original screenplay, Clearville, was produced by Alexander Enright Productions and aired on Lifetime. She has taught screenwriting at UCLA, Stevens College, and the AFI DWW, and has been the board president for the Sin Story Foundation, a screenwriting education nonprofit since 2009, and a board member since 2004. Welcome, Lisan Sartor, to the podcast. Lisan, we, as you know, ask people what they think about when they can't sleep, and we would love to know what you think about when you can't sleep. Uh, the list feels endless. I have been a chronic insomniac since I was probably 10. When I can't sleep, I think the best example I could think of right away, when my son was, uh, well, when my son was born, I noticed that there was something going on with him, but he was six weeks old. And my mother burst out laughing, sitting next to him. She wasn't even that close to him, but she had a, she was a big woman. So she had this big, loud laugh and she burst out laughing. And my kids sobbed in a way I had never heard a baby sob before. And I thought, uh-oh, we have a problem. Because in college, I had done this paper on kids on the spectrum, kids with autism. They didn't call it a spectrum as much back then. And I thought, noise sensitivity. This kid is really noise sensitive. So I just kept my eye on him. And gradually, I started to sleep less and less. Because as he got older, he was always such a bright kid and so affectionate and so out there. But totally noise sensitive, no stranger fear, just all these little signs and his speech was late. You know, so I would sleep less and less, but it wasn't awful yet because I would wake up thinking, what are we going to do today to help him? But when he hit six, my mother-in-law died. And my, I had another kid at that point. My, my son, August, is only 20 months younger. Oh yeah. But when Anthony, when my mother-in-law died of cancer, my son, Anthony, the older son, was very close to her. And all of a sudden he started what's called, he was pacing and scripting. 
So he started suddenly to walk, like pace the, the house and recite dialogue from books and movies. And sometimes I would say to him, well, what are you talking about? And he's like, oh, a movie, which one? Well, I put Transformers and Raiders of the Lost Ark together. It was six. And I didn't know at the time that that was um, perseverative behavior. And so as we got deeper and deeper into, because he disappeared, like this kid, all of a sudden he was, this bright, happy kid was sitting there staring off into space, just scripting. When we took him in for um, evaluation, my husband did not want to believe there was stuff going on. And I just knew. And men, I think, from what I've read since then, men have a much harder time um, accepting that there's something wrong with their kid that they can't change. But for me, what I started doing is I would start researching. And so I would research, 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 and I was writing. And everybody kept saying to me, oh, he's too connected. Oh, he's too this. Oh, he's too that. He doesn't, he can't have autism. And I was like, no, this kid, he didn't have two words. He did not put two words together until he was almost three. So I stopped sleeping. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would think, okay, what else? What am I not looking at? What, what um, diagnosis have I, not diagnosis, what research have I missed? What, uh, method of help have I missed? Who else can I call? I had notebooks this thick because I would look stuff up and then I would just handwrite stuff down and then I would throw it in the notebook. And so then I, I, that's how I was keeping track. I wasn't even doing it on the computer. And I called, I can't even tell you how many doctors I called. There's so many doctors and they all are overwhelmed. So to get your kid in, I was always on the phone. And so I'd be up and it would be tactical training in my head. How do I help this kid? And it was anxiety. It was panic. It was all the things that have always kept me up to the nth degree. And finally, my doctor said to me, look, you have got to work this out because if you continue to sleep this little, you will go crazy. He said, losing sleep like this can kill you. It was the worst my sleep I think had ever been other than when I was an assistant director. I think I eventually, I eventually went on meds and that helped. That helped a lot. Mm. And then of course it was about August too, because my younger son, it turns out, had uh, extreme ADHD. Like me, he was quick to get angry. And as a small child, when you lack, lack impulse control, it means it would lead to like tantrums every day, five times a day. And so I had these two kids that were having very opposite experiences well, just for context, can you tell me how old they are now? Anthony just turned 21. Okay. So that's my older son, and um, August is 19. And I lose sleep over them now, but for very different reasons. How old was Anthony when you, you had sort of diagnosed him and there was an acceptance and you sort of were moving forward? And were you sleeping at that point? He was diagnosed three times. Just before he was seven, he was diagnosed by a neuropsychologist and a developmental pediatrician. And then in order to get him services, we had to have him diagnosed again by the Westside Regional Center because California works on regional centers and you can get services for your kid up to the age of three any for any kid. And then you have to have some kind of a diagnosis that falls under their purview. And autism had become so prevalent that they did not want Anthony Basically, I feel they didn't want him to have services. They felt he was too high functioning. So I had to prove why my child was affected enough. So I didn't settle in from the diagnosis for a couple of years because basically I took Anthony to the regional center and there was this really interesting guy that was the head of the program at the time. And he basically indicated that they probably weren't going to give Anthony services. And I knew my kid needed them and he deserved them because he, Anthony had been tested so much at that point, he would go in and he would act as normal as he could. You know, it was just, he knew what to do. And I showed him this, this doctor, some footage I had taken of Anthony pacing and scripting. 
Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he said, if you show me more of that, that will help. So I followed my kid around for months with a camera and I filmed him pacing and scripting and all the behaviors I knew that they weren't seeing. And then I sat down and I wrote, and mind you, at that time, I wasn't making my own films. That's what I was going to ask you. I wasn't yet. I was, I was writing. I was a screenwriter, but I, and I knew I'd always wanted to be a director, but I wasn't directing. So I sat down and I wrote narrative and I did this voiceover of my own over all of the footage. And then I sat down and I basically wrote a book report <laughs> comparing wow. why I thought my son qualified as, as having high functioning autism, not Asperger's because they would not give you anything for Asperger's. It still wasn't considered autism. It was a separate thing. What and year then I could, was this? So it was 2008. Okay. Basically, I shot a mini documentary about it and I gave them the report that I had written. And I got to tell you guys, out of all of the things I had done, aside from having my kids, when I got the call that he had gotten services, it was wow. so incredibly rewarding. But they only gave him services for a year. Oh, come on. Uh huh. And they said, you have to do it again. So I had to do it all over again within the next year. So that was another year of sleeplessness and how am I going to get this? And so when I finally got the call that he got lifetime services, then I relaxed a little. Yeah. And I have to tell you, it was so painful Mm. to have to prove that my son was sufficiently fucked up enough to qualify for services. And now you wouldn't necessarily know that he's on the spectrum. What would you actually say to, to other parents going through that right now? Don't ever take no for an answer. If you really believe, first of all, don't ever take no when it comes to a diagnosis. If you really think there's something going on with your kid that is standing in their way, don't accept any, what anybody else has to, has to say. Like they were telling me for a while that he's too connected, he's too this, he's too that. He was in speech therapy and all those things very early on. But I feel like, and this is something else that keeps me up at night sometimes. I feel like if we had intervened even earlier, even though all of that stuff happened when he was like all the speech therapy and stuff started when he was three, but I feel like had we been knowledgeable enough and had not accepted, oh, he'll be fine, that maybe we could have done something more. So I would say to people, don't take no for an answer. I've, I've also worked with couples where one thinks there's something wrong and oftentimes it's the mom and the other you know, oftentimes it's the dad just because the research shows that, you know, yep. you know, what was that like? It was hard because he did not want to hear autism. We knew ADHD was part of it because it was so bad that when we were sitting in with a neuropsychologist doing the parent portion of the um, of the paperwork, that was one of the things where she's like, well, I'm not sure because we were arguing about it like we could not agree. What I did that I feel like I could have really worked on is I was angry. I wanted comfort. I wanted someone I could confide in that was that wouldn't say to me, I can't go there with you. I, that's what I wanted. No, I. so I'm just finding what you're saying so relevant and fascinating because I do see couples and it's just about, you know, like not being able to accept that there's something wrong with yeah. your child or, or a label or a diagnosis because why do you think? Why do you think that is? I think, and maybe this, and maybe this isn't. I don't know what one my husband say, but I think men have a harder time not being able to fix, yeah, a problem and find that easy fix, and especially when it's their kids, and there's a sense of helplessness. I think that 
Women are taught from a young age that we're the weaker sex, which is not true, but we are physically weaker, therefore we are somewhat helpless. Men are taught that they should never be helpless. So when you get into, I feel, when women get into a situation that seems either unmanageable or or, um, insurmountable, our attitude is, bring it, let me see what I can do because it's not physical, so therefore I don't have to, I, I don't need my physical strength, I can use everything else I have. And I feel like we are taught to, that we can handle, well, or we are expected to handle anything, particularly when it comes to our kids. And that's not to say that my husband wasn't an involved dad. He was amazing with them. I mean, li- literally, he's one of those people that you'd say, you know, we've got 10 kids here and we don't feel like feeding them dinner. You go do it. And then all the adults would go sit in the, and he would go get them to eat their vegetables and he would have fun doing it and they would have fun doing it. But when it came to this, it was really hard. And so I would say to people, knowing what I know now, I wish I had known to ask him questions about what he was feeling and why he was feeling it. And if he didn't ask me those same questions, offer up my own. To just try and teach each other to be curious about what the other's experience is, as opposed to seeing that experience as something that you have to defend yourself against. You know, one thing that keeps popping into my mind is the denial I think I would have been in if I were in your place, especially if when you went to go get help, they're like, oh no, he doesn't need it. What, I feel like at first anyway, I would be inclined to say, oh good, that's good news. They're saying he doesn't have anything wrong with him. I'm going to go with that. I did. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was going to, could you talk about that a little bit? So Anthony had Anthony and um, I have a friend from college and he married somebody. They always say that my sister and I set them up and we were very good friends. The the couples were very good friends and we both got pregnant. Um, My friend Chris and I both got pregnant at the same time and we had our kids 24 hours apart in the same hospital across the hall from each other. Oh my God. And oh yeah. And so Sam and Anthony were inseparable. And then our second set of kids, we got pregnant on Valentine's Day, each of us, and the kids were born two weeks apart, and we had the same due date. Oh, my so, God. And these kids, they were like a foursome for many years. But Sam was super verbal, my friend's kid, Sam, super verbal, and they were so well-paired in every other way, except that Anthony was not verbal. And I was so concerned about it because, again, I knew about autism that I kept going to the pediatrician and she kept saying, you know, if he's got this many words by this age, he's fine. And I would think, oh, and then I would start counting words. And she said, I feel like the word 200 keeps, the words 200 keep coming in line to the word. I feel like she said he had to have 200 words by the time he was two and he just barely did. And I thought, oh, but then I realized he wasn't putting two words together. I mean, this is, and guys, by the way, this is what I'm losing sleep over at this point. Like yeah. getting up and counting. I'm getting up and counting the words on a list, you know? Mm-hmm. And when he finally put two words together, he said more flies because he had this little Eeyore toy that had butterflies on it. And I remember we were in the bathroom. He was in the bathtub. And he pointed at it and he said more flies. And I went, oh my God, he put two words together. Oh, thank God. Maybe he doesn't, he doesn't have autism. And I went and I wrote it down in my calendar. I said, Anthony said, more flies. And thank God I did that actually, because when I did do that report for the Westside Regional Center, I said, he only did that once. And he did not say two words 
He did not put two words together again until after he was three. So that is one of the major criteria. He's going to live, a, he's going to live a full life. He speaks, he, he speaks well, he's very articulate. He's, um, he does, he's very aware of what his challenges are and he's learned how to work around them and he's still learning. He, and he's the hardest, he works so hard at all of it, you know, and he's incredibly insightful. We just had this amazing uh, conversation the other day about um, dating and that kind of thing. It was incredible. I, I was just curious, like you, you just said, a, you had a talk with him about dating and it was incredible. Like, what is he like now? I do still lose sleep because I do worry that they're not going to find their way in the world. And I know they will. I mean, they really both are very, I'm going to do it myself. And when they do call to ask for advice, that's amazing because it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> that's very true yeah 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 what would you say um I guess both of their strengths are they're both incredible thinkers and creativity and being articulate people I mean really having these interesting thoughts and and talking about them or writing about them they're both excellent writers um and my younger son's an amazing painter and they're both funny like I, I managed to have the, the kid on the spectrum who totally gets sarcasm. Like, <laughs> Do you think they realize like how much you worry about them and how much work you've put into to just them being them? I don't know, but I would hope they don't. Yeah. Because I don't want them to feel any kind of guilt or any, because I would have done it anyway. You know what I mean? It's not like I, I grew up in a family where, and I, my, my parents were so kid oriented in a lot of ways when it came to wanting us to achieve and being proud of us and all those things. But because of their dynamic, my mom made it very clear what, how much she did for us or what she wasn't getting because when she was angry, not when she wasn't angry, it was very clear what she wasn't getting or what she wasn't able to do because of us. And that made it really hard. And so I never wanted my kids to feel that way. Um, so even when things have been really rough in our family, um, and they've said to me, mom, are you okay? I have always said, I, I'm not, but I will be. And it's not your responsibility to get me there. It's mine. Number one, such a healthy response. I'm impressed. It's fine. <laughs> and secondly. Lots of therapy. Yeah, I mean, that was, wow. I mean, we all could take a little bit of a, a lesson from you on that one. Um, but one of the yeah. things I remember Colette, uh, who was also on our podcast, talked about was her need to be perfect. And her finally being willing to break out of that. And as twins, I was, because to find out your child has, is diagnosed with something that, like you said, you don't have control over, but isn't quote perfect. How did you feel? Did that burden you at all? Or do you not have that same sense of needing to be perfect or trying to be perfect? Or is that your sister's cross to bear and not yours? No, I think it's for both of us. I really do. I feel like particularly growing up in our household where we had this brilliant, brilliant mom, I mean, and just vivacious and funny and troubled. And she was always treated as less than because she was a woman and because she was heavy. And I think even when she wasn't heavy, she was probably treated that way. And it was, it was a generational thing too. It's like, she didn't get as much as the boys or she wasn't expected to do as much as the boys. And so to, to see our mom over her lifetime be treated that way all the time, I know that I felt 
that I did not want to be here, therefore I had to be the best. Or I had to go out there and conquer a man's job. You can't play with the big dogs if you piss like a puppy. And the whole idea was to get a big dog job, you know, and to do something that was really hard to do and impress the family and impress the men because being a woman wasn't enough. And so it was always about trying to be enough, enough, more than enough, and never figuring out who I actually was. So I had this weird sense almost my entire life of being less than, do you know what I mean? Like I had to be more than, I had to behave more than, I had to achieve more, but I wasn't good enough to actually go after what I wanted. I was good enough to go after the practical stuff, like being an assistant director, which is what I did first when I came out. Um, I worked in film production when I first came out. And there was this test for the DGA trainee program. And it was known for having like two to 4,000 applicants and taking 20 people. And I thought, and I knew what an AD did. An AD is a set manager. And you manage everything on the set from schedule to talent to this to that. It's like a nitty gritty, bad for your body, stressful job. And it's male dominated. And so I thought I'm going to take that test. I'm a good test taker. So how then, now that we understand, because I think my question, what my question was, when you found out that Anthony and to some extent August had issues, which all of our children do. Yeah. How did your need to be the best or be better than affect that for you? Was that part of why you stayed up at night or do you feel like it had nothing to do with that? You were just problem solving. I feel like I was worried I wouldn't do my best for my child that I would for my children, for both of them, because at the time I didn't, exactly know what was going on with August. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know exactly with either of them. I always felt like, what if I miss something? You know, it was that desire to make sure like I cannot fuck this up. You know, I've fucked other things up this. I mean, I remember even when Anthony was a newborn, I would clear a path from the bedroom to his crib so that God forbid I tripped you know what I mean? Like I could not make a mistake and I make mistakes all the time, but these are my kids, you know what I mean? And so that was where the perfectionism kicked in. Cause you know, I actually originally thought you were asking me how did having imperfect, which I say with quotes, children affect your need for perfectionism. That never occurred to me because to me, they just, their diagnoses didn't change who they were. Mm-hmm, right. Although I will say the first diagnosis with Anthony, it took me a little while to realize. I always knew he was the same person, but I think what you put to bed is that notion of who you think your child is going to be. Mm-hmm. I think that happens no matter who your child is. Right. But it happened much younger with Anthony. And I knew when I met them right out of the womb that they were who they were. Like, I remember thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm not going to have the influence that I thought I was going to have. Yeah. Well. I think there's just such a letting go process when you have kids the whole way through and such a need to want to control the process at the same time. Oh my God. Yeah. There's an attachment to the outcome for many parents. And then there's, then there's the need to let go, you know? So um, it it really does feel like you, you, you know, there's that quote, some women are lost in the fire and some women are built from it. (laughs) And it feels (laughs) like, you were really, you know, that fire got in, 
within you and you're yeah. like, I, I'm, I'm just not going to screw this up. I've got to, you know, um, I've got to do what I've got to do in order for them to, to be who they're going to be. And, uh, you didn't get lost in the fire. You really like, um, held the flame for them. And, and then they became who they were going to be anyways, I think because of that support. I think there's, um, sort of a gray line here that I want to get at, which is that there's the moment, because when you first started talking, um, you were talking about that you were up at night trying to figure out what you could do. And clearly what you did helped, but there's got to be a point at which you, you know, that you want to push on the gas. And there's a point at which you, you realize that you are pushing as far as you can push and there's nothing else to be done. So, so at what point do you let go of that? It's hard because uh, my husband once compared me to a pit bull. <laughs> I have a really hard time accepting that there's nothing else to be done. Mm-hmm. In my brain, I'm a, I love puzzles. I, like, I just feel like there's always a way. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of what goes on for me at night is that my brain is always working on what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what about this? What about that? What about this? Because I am so determined a lot of the time, even, and even when I shouldn't be, I'm so determined to figure out a solution. I agree with you. There is always a way. And we've heard so many times on this podcast, how people say, as long as I know I've done everything I can do. But what's interesting about what you're talking about is there is a way. And then there's this whole, like you're driving one car and truly your children are in their own separate cars. So you can push your gas pedal as far down as you want in your car, but it doesn't mean that the other car is going anywhere. Exactly. And that's been interesting because quite honestly, about three and a half years ago, I went to Al-Anon and um, for many, many reasons. And I mean, it was dire. And I went to Al-Anon. It's for people who, who are affected by alcoholics. Okay. But it's also, and, and so, but I would have, what it made me realize, I had tried years before when the kids were little and it made me realize that my mom, even though she wasn't an alcoholic, had an massive eating disorder and that she was my first qualifier. So really, if you've got addiction in your life, Al-Anon's a great place to go. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't have to be, it can be drugs, it can be alcohol, it can be food, it can be money. And she actually was, she was amazing because she started the first Overeaters Anonymous chapter in New Jersey. You're kidding. Wow. No, she was a very, she was one of those people like, I want to get it done. I'm going to get it done. And this is just, this has nothing to do with addiction, but my mother also was so determined to get rid of head shops in New Jersey that she became friends with the state senator and they did it when I was 13. Wow. And I was so embarrassed. <laughs> so embarrassed. <laughs> wow. Your mom sounds, I mean, just remember from Colette talking about her too. She sounds like such an, it's such an interesting person and just, it's so sad just the way that things yeah. went out. It was really hard. It was really, really hard. So I went to Al-Anon many years ago and was like, and, and literally couldn't be that vulnerable. Like I, I burst into tears in a big meeting once in front of a bunch of people. I never went back for 15 years. And then when I went back, it was extreme and I had like fallen apart and I went in and the first thing I absorbed was letting go. Like I had, I had always heard um, the serenity prayer, which is God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And I never once thought about what it meant. Never. And 
probably because honestly, I grew up in, as a Catholic and am so, so not a Catholic anymore. I'm such a last Catholic organized religion. I don't do. So the word God was like, I'm not even going to think about this. And now what I realize is it's all about reality, which is grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, which is people, places, things around me. I really don't have any control over them, including my children, including my husband, including my family. Courage to change the things I can is me. Like really, that's all I can do. I I can't change my first thought. I can't change my first reaction, but I can change those that come after that. And, and that was liberating. And then the wisdom to know the difference was, oh, that's something I can learn. And all of a sudden, it became this really powerful tool about how to figure out how to live a less anxious, driven life and actually slow down and start to be, like I was saying before, curious about life as opposed to defend it against it. So then as you incorporated this into your life, the meaning of that prayer into your life, how did that change or affect your relationship or perspective with your children? You know, there was a lot of yelling and screaming in my family growing up, my family of origin, lots. I mean, my parents got married too young, um, were super funny together, like had a really good time together, but fought like cats and dogs. And it was, and so that's how we grew up learning how to communicate. And so I was a yeller when it came, when things started to feel out of control, I would yell or I would try to just push them to do it my way. You know what I mean? And when I got into this program, all of a sudden I realized like, you know, slogans like how important is it? Mm. I would be in a room with my son saying things to me that I totally didn't agree with, or he was completely misinterpreting me. He was completely doing this and completely doing that. And then I would stand there and I would think, how important is this mm. for me to sit here and argue with my kid about something he's probably not going to change his mind about, because, and I'm not going to change my mind about because we're both angry right now. And he may never change his mind, but I can't control that. What can I control? Oh, I can shut my mouth and I can walk out of the room. And then later I can go and apologize for what was my part. Right. No qualifying, no saying, and my kid has called me on this actually, where it was the beginning of his freshman year of college. And we had this, I, I, you know, I was exhausted and acting like a child and he was anxious and strained and all this kind of thing. And finally I was saying, I'm sorry, but, and I was trying to explain, he's like, that's not an apology. And I went, yeah. And I was able to say, you're right. That's it. It's just accepting responsibility, having the ability to have insight and awareness into your part and really just apologizing with no ifs, ands, or buts. But I feel like now that they're in their early 20s and they've gone through and they have these diagnoses and they have some clarity about because of all the work that you did, do you feel like you have a mature relationship with them at this point? In terms of do we have a more adult relationship? Yes, I feel like with both of them, that's definitely been happening. And it's weird sometimes. To worry so much about two people who are so obviously men, you know, because they're still my kids. I still look at them. And it's interesting. I, what I've noticed about them that I, that I have a much harder time with my husband is I can look at them. And if I'm getting angry at them, I can picture those small children still in them and have compassion for them and see where... And it doesn't happen very often, but if they're being hurtful, 
I can now see that, that child and where it's coming from and what they might be feeling. I don't, I'm learning to not take it so personally and realize that the way they're behaving is coming from something that hurts in them that I may have hurt actually, that it may be my fault. I mean, that's been another great thing about Al-Anon is, is actually being able to apologize to them for things that I've done wrong in their past and, and then have them say, yeah, that wasn't as bad as some other things, <laughs> which is really interesting. <laughs> and that. And that, I don't, oh, one day I said something to them. I apologized for something. And both of them had the same reaction on different occasions. Mom, I don't remember that, but there's so much else that fucked me up. <laughs> I was like, oh. It's but, so interesting to hear yeah. you talk because I think I'm uh, on the perfectionist spectrum myself, especially as a parent and as a, you know, you try to get things right. At least I did. Oh, yeah. And it's so, God, it, it provides such relief to hear you talk because really what I'm hearing you say is that perfectionism is really the monster in the room. And what is healthy is the acceptance of your imperfection and you're being able to admit that imperfection. And then just understanding that you're going to make a mistake and you can apologize for it. Well, you know, when they were little, I, I screwed something up. I, I don't even know what it was. I just, I actually came across this Facebook post, but I remember this day so vividly because something had gone wrong and I, I, it was really important to me and I had to fix it. And I didn't, oh, I think I know what it was, but regardless, <laughs> I had made a mistake. I'd hurt somebody's feelings and I had to apologize, you know, and one of the kids did something wrong and I stopped them. And I said, okay, let's talk about making mistakes. I said, cause I learned something today. I said, when you make a mistake, here's what you got to do. And I want you guys to really remember this. You've got to acknowledge that you made the mistake and you've got to tell people you're sorry if that's in order and then you and ask for forgiveness and then you've got to forgive yourself. And then fix whatever you can and then move on and learn from it. Moving forward, learn from that mistake. But I don't feel like I started to learn that. And they were small when I told them that. I don't feel like I really started to internalize that till I went to Al-Anon. And so many people, if they have narcissistic tendencies especially, cannot do that. It's very hard for them to admit fault or responsibility. And the Um, thing I love the most, I just have to add this, is the forgiveness of yourself. I mean, that to me certainly was my own cross to bear. Oh yeah. I mean, and I don't think I'm good at that yet. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I feel like that is the, when you were talking about those, those things, I was like, wow, yeah, that's it. And you know, one other thing that it brought to mind is, I don't know, I'm on this many lives, many masters kick and it said something like the purpose of life isn't to achieve things, it's to learn. I remember feeling like, oh my God, so if I don't get everything accomplished in this lifetime, it's okay. I'm just here to figure it all out. Like what if that was just such a huge lesson for me. And I feel like that's sort of what you're getting at. It's been very hard to internalize it because and, and for me I can intellectually understand anything but if I don't feel it in my body it ain't good and so that whole achievement thing is still something I struggle it's always going to be something I struggle with you know the fact that I haven't gotten to where I want to be in my career and may never is very hard to accept it's very hard and to to accept that part of the reason that it has not happened is because I have never had the confidence to really push myself the way I have helped other people develop. Do you know what I mean? 
And, and that is changing for sure, but it's taken many years to realize. And honestly, it took things falling apart. You know, you were talking about building stuff from fire. Um, my marriage fell apart just before I entered. It had been falling apart, but it fell apart just before I went into Al-Anon. And we're rebuilding for sure. But that low in my life literally made me start from ground zero when it came to self-worth, under self-understanding, any of it. It was just so devastating. And, you know, and I had these two kids in high school who were, you know, one was a senior, one was a sophomore, and they were grieving. And it was a really difficult position to be in and to realize that um, I had to change. Like I had always tried to change in a lot of ways about my attitudes or my perfectionism or this or my that, but I would give lift service and nothing would change. Mm-hmm. And this and going to Al-Anon and really falling apart in that way, that really uh, made me rebuild, completely rebuild. And I, it's the first time in my life Al- Al-Anon has helped me sustain change in a way that I have never been able to do before. Um, but it took falling apart. It took my marriage falling apart. It took my family blowing up. Uh, for that to happen. It's so funny, Jenny. No, it's not funny at all, but Jenny, I really, that metaphor, I'd never, you've used many quotes many times, but that's, what is that quote again? About fire? Oh yeah, it's so perfect. Some women are lost in the fire. Some women women are built from it. I I, I love that. I love that. Yeah, Yeah. it's fantastic because I identified with it as soon as you said it. Yeah. Because I feel like that's what my life has been, a series of fires. And it's only after the fire or during the fire that I start to change and that I start to rebuild and that I start to figure out who I really am. You but, start to learn. I mean, yeah, that, if yeah. that's the point of life, then that's really it. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, there's something about that that is so freeing to me that, that relieves me of all of my really suffering. You know, like, because if you feel like, well, I'm here to make mistakes and then learn from it. That is actually the point. Then you're successful when you're making mistakes in a way. Well, you know, it's, it's Freud wrote the book, Civilization and Its Discontents, right? Because we're set up in our culture to think that we have to build and know and, you know, reach certain goals and expectations and go to the best schools and get married and have a perfect wedding. And then, you know, what we create is a system that, you know, can't hold itself up in many ways. And so what we start to realize is that when we actually get to the root of, you know, Hey, I'm a human being, you know, my, one of my clients says, I'm, I'm it, I'm it. She was a human doing now. She's a human, That's being. a human being. I love right. that saying. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it is so true that, you know, the, the point is to just be and to learn as you're being. You know, and it is freeing because our whole culture is not created on that. That's been a really interesting thing, too, is that whole idea of radical acceptance. Uh Yeah. I remember the first time I heard someone say, I don't like the past. I can't change the past. I accept the past. I burst into tears because I, I still have trouble accepting that, oh, this is my past. It's a shitty past. Like, there's some really shitty things in there. And I can't change any of them. You know, because part of being a perfectionist is wanting to be able to go in there, control everything and make sure it fits and make sure it works and make sure I can feel good about it. And there's just some things you're never going to be able to do that with. And also reframing it as 
all of those things made you who you are. Who and had they not yeah. happened, wouldn't be. And I, I, you know, I'm really just so struck by how all, <laughs> I hate to say it, all this hardship you've put on yourself has helped. It's so funny you said, I help other people more than I help myself. And maybe in this second part of your life, um, it'll be a time where you're saying, I mean, it's funny because I looked at what you do. You, you have this foundation that you're the head of and you're helping all of these other writers and directors become what their dream is. And you, at one of the things you said in this podcast is that you, some, you have some lamenting going on about where, where your career is. And, and yet you, you're spending your life helping other people get to their dreams. So it's interesting that, you know, it's almost like yeah. all, you could focus the energy or it sounds like you, you just said you were the energy. If you're now starting to turn the energy inward toward, toward yourself. Yes. Well, that's why I'm at this writers at this artist colony. Um, and I, I'm doing another residency in May. I'm here to write. It's one of those places where they, you know, you, you come, you get put up, they feed you. I'm growing rounder as we speak. That's it's so amazing. Funny. You guys, it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to one in Alaska in May and I'm going to keep going to them as much as I can get into them because they really are that time where you can completely focus on what you love. And honestly, that, that shifts and changes, you know what I mean? And so that just having that time to explore and focus on me and still be in contact with my family, I feel like it's a very hard road to be on to and I'm not sure if this is all of them, but I feel like a lot of women are taught or women are taught in society that to self-care, uh, doing for yourself, all this kind of stuff, they're dirty words in a way. What about people who want to work and have children and be good parents and be, you know what I mean? It's really hard to do. And then for women, I feel like the expectation is that you come last, your needs, your desires, your dreams get subjugated so that everybody else, at least that's, that's the message I got as a kid for sure. And, and I had a very angry mother because of it. Here, your mother did it and she still had to pay the piper. Yes. Like, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, you can do it, but eventually it will crumble. Eventually it will. Exactly. Crumble. Something's going to give. And you know, the funny thing is it wasn't until I've gotten older that it suddenly occurred to me one day, because I know I've been talking about my, my mom a lot, but it occurred to me about my dad one day. And this is after my mom had died and there was a lot of strife in the family. And we had finally started really talking again and we were visiting him. And I looked at my sister all of a sudden, I said, you know what? Sometimes dad acts like this because he's anxious. I said, he has a lot of anxiety. He's worried about us. He's worried about things not happening in the way that somebody getting hurt, something. And it never occurred to me. I just kept thinking, oh, here he is, this control freak, typical guy who wants to do what he wants to do and da, da, da. And really a part of that was anxiety over, I can't keep everybody safe. I can't keep everybody happy. I can't, you know what I mean? Like, it took me 50 some odd years to realize that my dad's just as much of an anxiety case as we are. Well, it's what you said before about having the compassion you have for your children, for your husband, for your parents, for your yeah. friends, because really, okay, there are some truly psychopathic people out there who are awful, but most people do things that hurt other people because 
that's the best they can do in that. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And understanding that frees you from a lot of the anger that can, you know, push you down, I think. And I think that's what you're saying. I think that letting go of that anger towards our parents is so freeing in a way because you can then take a step back and see who you are apart from them. And to the different yeah. cars. Yeah. Like once you're in your own car, even away from your own parents and you can be 50 years old and, and be in that car away from your parents and realize, Oh, and see them as a, as a human being. I don't think I even thought of my mom as a whole human being. So I was, so I was married and she had been looking, I wore her wedding dress for my wedding and she was so happy about it. It was a gorgeous dress. She designed it. Um, and she was very, very heavy. She was well over 300 pounds. And um, we were sitting at the table, just the two of us at her house. And she was telling me as she'd been watching the video and she was watching my dad dance with, and she's thinking, where's Lisan? Because I looked so much like her in her wedding dress. Wow. And, and that, wow. I, I oh, you guys, I, it just killed me. And I thought, oh, mm-hmm. my mom does not always see the heavy woman she currently is when she looks into the mirror. She often sees who she used to be because mm-hmm. that is who she is. She's still the same person in there. Right. And that's been something that, that was all of a sudden I realized, oh, she's not just the person that I see. She's not just my mom that I see every day that I have these very typical thoughts about. And I do, that has kept me up nights, I have to say. Mm. Quite well, a bit. Um, well, what about it has kept you up? Just what feelings had come up in you around it? My lack of compassion my frustration with her, my wanting her to be healthy. Um, You know, we would watch her like a hawk. She was an adult woman. And we learned that mom shouldn't be eating certain things. And so, you know, there's that one point I remember being out at a meal when we were in high college and she looked at my sister and said, you don't get to tell me what to eat. And she was right. And we were both mortified. But it wasn't just us. I mean, it was everybody around her. They felt like they had the right, because clearly this was a person with no self-control, which wasn't true. It's interesting. You know, probably that was, her, that was her control. It was the only thing she probably could Exactly. Do. Exactly. Yeah. And so I have a lot of feelings of guilt and a lot of sadness that she ended up living such a circumscribed life because for so many years she was... Um, she did live a big full life and then got, it got smaller and smaller and smaller as she got more um, debilitated. And I think not being a, again, that was her, that was her journey and you had no control over it. You know, I'm sitting here thinking though, that you know what time it is, right? You, everyone here must know what time we're all having what hot flashes right now. Is it the hot? <laughs> okay. So here we go. Essentially we're going to ask you some questions and you just answer the best you know how which best describes your approach to aging? Let nature take its course, B, color inject or cut me open as is necessary, or C, all of the above? All of the above. Whatever <laughs> works. Exactly. Honestly, seriously, I'll do it if I feel like it's going to work, but for now, I'm not doing anything. Got it. Um, you do not need to. You're absolutely beautiful. Oh, when I look you- and I'm like, oh. Oh, no. We all. 
listen, y'all. I'm with you. What do you prefer, puberty or menopause? Menopause, easy. Okay, I'm not even going to go there. I'm, I'm the only <laughs> one. Pick one, screens or no screens. Oh, I can't live without screens. Who am I kidding? Screens. Okay. Just not, not at the table, not at family time. Got it. What is the best thing about insomnia? Oh, thinking, learning, reading. Ooh, it's as if you've thought that one through. That was a very- No, that was, that was, it, I really feel that way. Yeah, I like, okay, that's interesting. Um, and what is the worst thing about it? Exhaustion, pain, misery, <laughs> true bitchiness. I am not a nice person when I don't yeah. sleep. What is the best and worst thing about having kids? When I had both my kids, I felt like I got a, woke up to a present every day. I really, I remember thinking that, especially with my first kid, because I'd never had a baby before and I was never interested in having kids. And it really does feel like I get this gift every day of having these people in my life that are just always, I may have given birth to them, but they're always a revelation to me. Mm-hmm. And it's just amazing. And the worst thing about having kids is that constant sense of what if I fail them? What if I don't do enough? What has been the most surprising thing about being middle age? I feel the same age as I was when I was 20. Uh-huh. So true. <laughs> it's like my body is tired, but the rest of me is not. <laughs> what, is, what is the best thing about being middle age? I'm so much more at peace. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm able to appreciate what I have learned and maybe even incorporate a little bit into how I live. And if you had to pick one word, a cuss word or otherwise to describe middle age, what would it be? That's a good one. Um, surprising. I think that's really it for me. Middle age has been a surprise. I'm not as old as I thought I would be. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really the big surprise is that I look in the mirror and I see big changes. Yeah. But, and, I, and I feel so much more peace and I feel so much more centered and grounded, but at my core, really haven't changed who I am. And it makes me look at people older than me and realize that they're not as old as I think they are either. Like age is just such a relative thing. And I think relative would be another thing I would say about yeah. middle age, surprising and relative. I just want to thank you so much for coming on today. It's just oh, been thank you guys. such a beautiful conversation. And um, I'm really glad you joined us. And um, thank you for asking me. Um, and to our listeners, thank you as well for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. To learn what we're all about, visit us at themidnightramblings.com, where you too can become a fansomniac. And of course, be sure to tell your friends because your support is necessary to make this thing take off. So for the Midnight Ramblings, this is Jenny Silberstein and Carrie Austin Rosenthal. Thank you again for joining us and we will see you next week.